0: Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast that explores the family history of killers. I'm Denise, and with me is Zelda. Now, let's get started.
1: Hey, Denise, how are you? I'm fine. How are you doing, Zelda? I had the funniest thing happen today. So I'm still doing the whole uh, curbside pickup for groceries because I Mm -hmm. despise grocery shopping. And this also keeps me from impulse (laughs) purchasing too many pints of Ben and Jerry's.
0: Well, that's probably smart. I actually love grocery shopping. It's the only type of shopping I love.
1: Oh, gosh. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a certain freedom about it. You know, like it's you Mm -hmm. can justify anything because it's food, right? Um, right. So I got the curbside pickup on my way home. I got a call and they said, Hey, we forgot to give you your refrigerated food. And I'm like, Well, what was that? And they said, Well, it was like bacon and grapes. I'm like, Okay, that's not desperate. Go ahead and just take it off of my, my thing. I'm not coming back for that. So I pull into the garage. I pull the groceries out and I realize there's a lot of groceries back here. So they've given me some of the other person's groceries. Somebody else's groceries, and oh no. I'm concerned about these people's diet. So I looked at, <laughs> and it's literally ten pounds of frozen vegetables, like two gigantic. I didn't know they put frozen veggies in this these big bags, but they're fi- mm-hmm. two five pound bags of California mixed frozen vegetables. Well that's good for you though. Well, it's good for you, but oh my god, they need more variety. I was just like, Do people not believe in cucumbers or perhaps sweet peas or something? Well so some of us don't like vegetables. And now very they're much. they're in my freezer taking up half my freaking freezer. So Because I can't really take them Uh, back. They can't take groceries back once, you know, they've been in someone else's hands. And I certainly don't want to see them go to waste. But if anyone um, who's listening has any ideas for like casseroles to feed a thousand people that involve 10 pounds of frozen veggies. Stir fry, lots of stir fry. Yeah, but I don't want to eat all this myself. I need to be able to put it in a casserole and stuff it down someone else's throat. Because I already have a lot of frozen veggies because I love frozen veggies. Uh, They're just super easy. But I don't have a speck of California mix because I'm like, okay, it's carrots, cauliflower, and what's the third thing? Broccoli. Broccoli. That's it. But I have separate containers of broccoli, carrot, you know, all that other stuff. So, and mm-hmm. plus stuff for stir fry, like peppers and things like that. I'm just like, oh, my God, I need recipes. So, hey, folks, here's here you can help <laughs> out your beloved podcasters by sending me only recipes that involve large amounts of California mixed frozen veggies. Thank you. That would be awesome. <laughs> Anything exciting happen in your world today?
0: Not really. I mean, we we had a weekend of sleepovers. Oh fun. So Friday my oldest had a friend over for a sleepover. And before it happened, I actually told my husband, I'm like, I wish I had decided to become that parent that didn't allow kids to go or have sleepover. <laughs>
1: Because now
0: I'm like dreading them. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. You're like, man, I wish I was a mean
0: mom. Why didn't I become a mean mom? And there's a lot of them, you know, people like, oh, well, you know, we've learned from what happened in the past. And, you know, you never trust. And I'm like, Uh I I go with my instincts. There's some people I do trust. Mm -hmm. And if I, my instincts are saying don't trust that person, I don't. Mm -hmm. There are some people I would not allow my kids to go
1: to their house. Mm -hmm. But, you know, most are fine. Uh I hear you. So, oh, my gosh. But they cert- you certainly don't get a lot of sleep, though, when it's at your house.
0: Yeah. And actually, you know, my oldest is pretty good. And it's so funny because her friend tends to stay up pretty late. Her family, just they all stay up late. And mm-hmm. my oldest needs her sleep. So they were asleep, I think, by 930. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, the middle child had a sleepover Sunday night. And I went to the bathroom around 1130 and I heard them. Oh, my gosh. So they were in the basement, but the my our bathroom's right over where they were sleeping. And I'm like, "What is going on?" So the next morning I talked to her and she's like, "Yeah, we woke up and then we started to dance and play." Oh, that's funny. And then and she goes, "And then we heard you." So then we got right back to bed. <laughs> oh, that's funny. And she was kind of a grouch a good portion of the I can day. I Because she didn't get enough sleep. But then if you were to ask her, she does the typical kid thing. I wasn't tired. Yeah, you're
1: just a bitch. <laughs>
0: yeah, well, and then, you know, at, at, at the time it's happening,
1: go. You know, you're tired. You need to get some sleep. I'm not tired. Oh, my gosh. I love that. And there's a particular tone to it. You know, like they're so yeah. horribly offended. You would think that they're yes. tired. My goodness so I'd be all like, man, oh, I so- want to nap.
0: <laughs> yeah. So the next night she, you know, I don't want to go to sleep. I'm not tired. I'm really not. And she went to bed and I checked. Ten minutes later, she was out. Yeah. She was exhausted. Mm-hmm. She just never would admit mm-hmm. it. <laughs> yep. You know, being eight is tough. Yes, but. it is.
1: Yes, it is.
0: <laughs> but, you know, school next week, the kids have um, something called Totus Tuus. Oh. Which it's. A Catholic, so we're Catholic, and you knew that, but I mean, our listeners might Mm not. (laughs) And it's basically kind of like a vacation Bible school, except it centers around the Rosary. Oh,
1: that'll be lovely.
0: And um, my oldest two have gone there before. My oldest has gone, you know, since she started first grade. This is our youngest first time going. So all three girls are going to totus to us for the week. Oh, my. I mean, it's in town, so we pick them up and everything, but.
1: Oh, that means I get the house myself during the day. Say, what are you even going to do with yourself during the day? <laughs>
0: Maybe get some stuff done there,
1: get the house clean. Uh, don't waste your time doing that. Go do something fun. Yeah, well, and a couple, you know,
0: school's coming soon, so. Mm-hmm. But we should probably get started. <laughs> oh, and and before we do that, though, we need to introduce ourselves a little bit more because we know they know our names, Zelda and Denise. But this is Murderous Roots. Woohoo!
1: And actually, today. <laughs> Um, This is unusual for us because, you know, you're listening to a murder podcast, so you kind of get what you get. But we do have a trigger warning mm-hmm. today because um uh we want to say if you have an eating disorder and you struggle with that, then this might not be the episode for you. But we have plenty no. of other blood and gore on lots of our other podcasts because we're nearing our one year anniversary. Yeah. So we have. All kinds yeah. of things you want to listen to. Um, but I, we do suggest that if this is something that triggers you, pick another episode to listen to, and we're going to go on and talk about Linda Hazard. Yeah. So what do you got for us? So she was a particularly evil work of art, along with her husband, <laughs> Sam. It's honestly, just, it's strange and just like bizarre. Mm-hmm. And so I was kind of like, how do you deal with this? So I'm like, I'm just going to go from the beginning. And we'll kind of try right. and do it a little bit chronologically. So probably
0: best on this
1: one. Yeah, because there's just there's a lot going on here. There's so much. Yeah. So Linda was born in Minnesota in 1867. That seems Mm -hmm. to be the last decent thing she did in her life. She got married (laughs) at age 18 and had two kids. And then in it looks like 1898 ish, abandoned them Uh to pursue her quote unquote medical studies. Now, frankly, I think this kid's lucked out that she left their lives, as you will soon see. And I guess she got around to divorcing him around 1902. Is that right, Denise?
0: That is a big question mark when that actually happened. Because there is no paperwork on it when it occurred. But I could see that. Okay. It fits the timeline.
1: Okay. So she got a bit of training as an osteopathic nurse and claimed to have studied under a man named Dr. Edward Dewey. I didn't actually find any actual evidence that happened, though. Um, I kind of wonder if she didn't like... Read his books and then say, oh, well, I studied under Mm -hmm. him because she lied a lot about lots and lots of things. Yes. Yes. So now Linda was purportedly this strong, independent, bullying woman who didn't need no man. But she snagged another one anyway in the form of one Samuel Crispin Hazard. And I wasn't Mm -hmm. sure if his middle name was Crispin or Crisman, because I saw it printed both ways. But I knew Denise would know. I do know that. It's Crisman. Okay, so So no. Like Chris Mann, excellent. Okay, so now Sam Hazard was just as moral and upright as Linda was, having been kicked (laughs) out of the military for either desertion or misappropriating funds. Again, I've seen it both ways, and I was too lazy to track down his military record. So I will cover what happened. Excellent. I figured all that out. Excellent. So now he was married to two other women when he decided to marry Linda. And Linda sat right behind him during his bigamy trial and swore Mm -hmm. to wait for him to serve his sentence. The trial figured out that I think the first marriage was legal. The second wasn't or something like that. Um, It's a mess. It's a mess. And so (laughs) anyway, the first wife divorced the bastard and then he married Linda free and clear and served two years for the crime of bigamy. So they were a match made in the deepest levels of hell. Um, yeah. They definitely seemed well suited to each other. They both were into cheating and scamming and just kind of like taking advantage of people all the way through their lives. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know that, you know, Tinder could have done much better. So <laughs> now Linda called herself a doctor, but she was definitely not any actual real doctor. Um, she had very little medical training. She had no medical license when we're, she was in Minnesota. Um, but she held herself out as a healer in Minnesota through what we might now call alternative medicine, except she was a quack. Yeah, that's what my parents would call it, a quack. Yeah, quackery. And, you know, I'm kind of into some of what we call alternative medicine today. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, quick tip to the wise, if you're looking to do some kind of cleanse, if you have kidneys and a liver, that does your cleansing. You don't have to yeah. do like these soup fasts or juice fasts because that doesn't support your liver and your kidneys. And, those are yes, the and things. even if you were to do that, it shouldn't last more than a day. Yeah, seriously, right? And this woman believed that all manner of ailments could be addressed by fasting because she believed mm-hmm. and she was a true believer that most ailments were caused by overeating and eating too much rich food. She also saw a sea of vulnerable marks, excuse me, people for whom actual medicine had not done much to help. So, you know, got to remember, this is the late 1800s. I mean, penicillin hadn't even been discovered yet. Mm -hmm. And I can't imagine like if someone who had fibromyalgia or even like diabetes or something and they're desperate for relief and there's there's no help. The doctors don't know what to do with you. And a lot of times we'll just say it's in your head, which we hear a lot today anyway. You know, well, especially if you're a woman, and, and especially <laughs> if you're black. overweight. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, and overweight. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. You just need to lose weight, and then we can talk to you about this. Yeah, exactly. But my arm's broken. Doesn't matter. Lose weight. You will not have a broken arm if you lost weight. Anyway, so just a little. These are our little side quips that people love us for. Okay. <laughs> I hope so. Now, most of the time when we think of fasting, as we talked about, you know, and, and I got to say, as a, also a Catholic, let me tell you, I've definitely done my share of fasting, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, but we think of a day or two in the back to normal, maybe one day a week, maybe only during right. daylight hours, you know, but it tends to have a definite beginning and end, right? Right. Well, with this bitch, there was no end. She just simply stopped allowing her patients to eat food. They lived off veggie broth and orange juice. And and guess what? If you guessed they died by the handfuls, you would be right. (laughs) Mm -mm. So she left Minneapolis in a hurry when the authorities got a little too close to holding her responsible for a patient who had died mysteriously in her care and who had also given Linda all of her property. Oh, that's convenient. Yeah, I know. Right. Uh, So weird. Such a coincidence a coroner had determined that starvation was the cause of death. However, his attempt to have hazard prosecuted failed. So what aroused suspicion, besides the fact the woman had starved to death, but the victim Mm -hmm. owned valuable rings that were missing from her belongings. When they questioned hazard about them, she was super evasive. And basically, the police and authorities were saying, you know, these are adults choosing to follow this regimen. There's Nothing to prosecute this woman for. But this Mm -hmm. coroner was like, this woman's killing people and kept his his beady eyes on her. So off they went to the state of Washington, where she encountered an odd loophole that gave real life to her scam. Mm -hmm. There was a legal loophole that allowed certain practitioners of alternative medicine a medical license without ever having gone to medical school. Mm -hmm. She claimed to have studied under Dr. Edward Dewey as we spoke a champion right. of fasting and his books are still in print as are hers. Did she actually learn anything? Who knows? And she was much more extreme than what he even had proposed. Right. But she the a- fact that her books are in print is disturbing to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can still buy them. I mean, it's and crazy you can see reviews of people
0: swearing by them.
1: Yeah. It's absolutely gross. It's so gross. Yeah. So Linda opened up this private practice in Seattle in the Northern trust and bank building, which still stands today, by the way, Then she opened up a sanatorium in Alala, Washington for therapeutic fasting. Then the bodies started stacking up. Now, she Mm -hmm. named it Wilderness Heights, but her neighbors called it Starvation Heights because when they Mm -hmm. came across her patients out in the wild, they were weak and starving. So now, again, the problem is that many of her patients praised the doctor's methods. I'm sorry, did I refer to her as a doctor? She is not a doctor. The problem is many of her marks, frankly, praised her methods. She was apparently, you know, really charismatic. She charmed lots of her patients at the very beginning. And then once they bought into her philosophy, they were too weak to protest. I mean, and then, you know, she went ahead and wrote books about this process. She gave speeches. She went on tour. And this gave credence to her methods. She even
0: created charts saying how long you needed to fast to cure certain things like Mm -hmm. cancer.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's I, I mean, it was it was so gross. Hi I'm Christine and I'd like to introduce you to the True Crime Files Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast that focuses on mysterious disappearances and unsolved murders. Every two weeks we'll be releasing an episode that'll help you get to know a case really well without having to invest a lot of your time. Derived from the articles upon the True Crime Files website, you'll find that our show covers a diversity of victims and perspectives. You'll probably also notice that our episodes are narrated by Scott Fuller from the Frozen Truth and Status Pending podcasts. Be sure to subscribe to the True Crime Files today so that you never miss an episode. Thanks so much for listening, being a part of our true crime community, and helping to shine a light on cases that might otherwise be overlooked or underreported. So now, um, i got this list. So I've, I'm about to give you the litany of the dead. And they Mm. have 12 they can directly trace back to her murdering them. They they think it was about 40 people that she actually murdered. Mm -hmm. I got this list from medicalbag.com under despicable doctors. So in 1908, Daisy Maude Haglund, a wealthy Norwegian immigrant, died at the age of 38 following a 50-day fast under hazard supervision. Other patients who died under her care in 1908 included Mrs. Elgin Cox and Ida Wilcox. In 1909, patients Blanche Tyndall and Viola Heaton both succumbed under her care. Another of her patients, 26-year-old Eugene Stanley Wakelin, was murdered by a bullet to his head on Hazard's property. Now, an investigation to identify the murderer was inconclusive. They presumed suicide, but suspicions that Dr. Hazard was the culprit swirled around town. Wakeland was the son of a British lord. Somehow, Hazard was given power of attorney over his estate. Huh. Go figure. She wired Wakeland's lawyer, demanded additional money to pay his outstanding bills. However, Wakeland wasn't wealthy, even though he had a noble title and aristocratic family, which anyone who's watched Downton Abbey would know this was the case in 1908. Yes. And it was speculated that Hazard had murdered Wakeland expecting financial gain. But again, couldn't be proven. Nineteen ten, her patient Maud Whitney, died under her care. Also in nineteen ten, civil engineer Earl Edward Erdman followed her fasting diet and died of starvation three weeks afterward. And he actually kept a diary of everything he ate. And it was it was awful. Like a half a cup of veggie broth. Six hours later, a cup of orange juice. I mean it was it was so gross. So these, these deaths were not going unnoticed. After Erdman died, the S- Seattle Daily Times headline read, Woman MD Kills Another Patient. But apparently the bad publicity didn't affect her practice, nor did another troubling pattern. Most of the patients who died under her care were mysteriously robbed of their money or valuable possessions. Some patients even left, left, some patients even left generous financial gifts to hazard upon their death. Her husband, Sam, was, of course, her accomplice in all of this. Of course. In 1911, five more patients under her care died, including C.A. Harrison, publisher of the Alaska Yukon magazine, who passed away a few months after adhering to Hazard's fasting regimen, and Ivan Flux, who died after 53 days of fasting. Wow. And, of course, Hazard managed to gain control of some of the property and cash. Now, the tide began to turn a little bit later in 1911. Mm-hmm. Two wealthy sisters in their early 30s, Dorothy and Claire Williamson, visited Victoria, British Columbia, and read an ad in a Seattle newspaper promoting Hazard's book, Fasting for the Cure of Disease, and they became enamored. Now, I have to just put in a little thing here. One of the articles I read said that they had come across this pamphlet while at the Empress Hotel. Now, <sighs> I have been to the Empress Hotel. In British Victoria, British Columbia. Oh wow! They have a spectacular afternoon tea. So, <gasps> listeners, if you ever get there um, on your way to visit the Butchart Gardens, stop there and just have a little bit of afternoon tea at the Epcot. It's lovely. We're to, and we're, they're not paying us to say that. I just really enjoyed it. <laughs> so, um, the sisters were wealthy and in financial control of a very large estate. In February 1911, they left Canada and rented apartments in Seattle to undergo the fasting cure they were put on a diet of weak vegetable broth. Hazard would visit the sisters regularly to administer enemas and pummeling massage therapy that was apparently quite painful. And um, she noticed their diamond rings. And so Hazard was so kind and offered to store the rings in her office safe for safekeeping, of course. Mm -hmm. So they lost weight very quickly under this, as one might think. And so after that point, they were transferred to Wilderness Heights Sanitarium. They were emaciated. They seemed delirious and they actually had to be transported in a, in a cot. They couldn't actually walk. They were so weak. Oh, geez. So Hazard had somehow managed to have Claire modify her will donating a 25 pound monthly stipend to Hazard's Institute. So remember these are British citizens. And so we need to remember this because that comes into play a little bit later. Yeah. And then, you know, modified it. Um, And again, oddly, that upon her death, her body was to be cremated under the supervision of Hazard. Yes. Hmm. So there would be any trace of evidence. Right. Of course. On the last day of April, Margaret Conway, the sister's trusted childhood nanny, received a cryptic telegram asking her to visit Dorothea and Claire at the sanitarium. Margaret immediately set sail from Sydney, Australia, and arrived in Seattle in June. Now, I have to tell you, when I think of this person, I think of the nanny. You know, who, you know, British nanny, a stout, formidable woman (laughs) who will brook no bullshit. And so, yes, this woman had, you know, imagine that I'm going to hop on a boat from Sydney because of a cryptic telegram. But that woman had good instincts. Yes, she really did. But of course, they tried to hustle her, too. So Sam met Margaret at the boat and then um, shared that Claire had passed away in the meantime and that Dorothea had gone mad. Margaret was shown an embalmed body at the mortuary, but she said the corpse didn't look at all like Claire Williamson. They think um, one of the suppositions was that they substituted out someone else who had died because Claire just looked so very emaciated when she died uh, um, that they didn't want yeah. her to see that. Went to see Dorothea. Apparently, Dorothea looked like a human skeleton and pleaded with her former nanny to take her away from the sanitarium. There are photographs of some of her patients and they are positively Mm -hmm. skeletal. When she went back the next day, Dorothea said, no, the fasting cure is working wonders and I don't want to leave anymore. Tried to convince Dorothea to go. She sneaked some food to put in her broth to get some little extra nutrition. And Margaret's meanwhile going, how the hell do I get this woman out of here before she ends up like her sister? Right. So July 4th arrived. And even though the patients at Hazard Sanitarium were generally separated from each other, Hazard let them all out on the grounds to celebrate the holiday. Margaret attended the gathering and noticed that Hazard was wearing Claire's silk dress and the deceased woman's favorite hat. That had to piss her off, right? Oh yeah, that would have ticked me off. Two patients approached Margaret and begged her to help them escape the sanitarium, explaining they were being kept there as prisoners against their will. Then Margaret discovered that Dorothea had given Hazard power of attorney and that she was siphoning her funds. Margaret met with Hazard and told her she was taking Dorothy home with her. Hazard informed Margaret that she had obtained legal guardianship of Dorothea. Yeah. And so the sister's former nanny was like, fuck that bullshit. And messaged their uncle in Portland, Oregon, who came immediately and left Mm -hmm. with Dorothea after paying a fee for her treatments. They demanded $2,000 to let Dorothea go. Of course they did. Yeah. She weighed... They were going to lose money by her leaving. So they had to, mm-hmm. you know. Absolutely. Dorothea weighed 60 pounds at the time mm. of her release. Thankfully, she did make a recovery, eventually married and lived to the age of 72. So yay. happy ending. Yay. So anyway, at this point, they picked up Dorothea. Authorities are like, the hell? Well, what had happened was British consul found out about this and lost his shit. And stepped in Mm -hmm. front of the authorities and said, you are going to do something. This was a, you know, this was a citizen of the Commonwealth. You know, this will be an international incident. So Hazard finally was arrested in August 1911. Tacoma Daily News ran a headline that said, officials expect to expose starvation atrocities. Dr. Hazard depicted as a fiend. And of course, she was defiant the whole time. She's like, I'm only being persecuted because I'm a successful woman. Um, and then she went on to say that traditional doctors just didn't believe in natural cures. And they resent her, and all the accusations against her were nothing but a witch hunt. You know, some of these
0: things never—they just repeat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Anybody who's a crook
1: is going. They say the same things. Mm-hmm. Well, overwhelming testimony, autopsy findings, and the revelations of forged documents proved her guilt in the death of Claire Williamson. As well as the ongoing robbery of her possessions and money. Now, that was it. That was, they didn't prosecute her for any of the other deaths. Just Claire's. They should have gone after her for more. They absolutely, well, Anthony should have gone after him. They didn't go after well, yeah, him for that's anything. Whole... I was like, what the hell? So the jury did believe that Hazard had starved her patients to death in order to rob them. Sort of. Mm-hmm. The g- jury did find her guilty of manslaughter. N- not Murder. They said that it was theorized. I'm not sure by whom, but somebody theorized the verdict would have been murder, but because hazard was a woman conviction of a lesser degree was typical of the times. Mm-hmm. Now she was sentenced to two to 20 years. That's a pretty big length of time, but what's going to happen now is going to piss you off.
0: Yeah. And now back then, just before you go on to the stuff that pisses you off, because I know what you're about to say. <laughs> um, Back then, they used to give broad ranges. Mm-hmm. I don't know why you would be like for murder, one to f- twenty years. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: it just yeah. didn't matter. It was always a broad range, and that's why we now have minimum sentencing guidelines. Yeah. So she was re- she only served two years. Um, she was released on parole in 1915, and then that same year, Governor Ernest list her remember the name Governor Ernest Lister, because we're going to start spitting every time we hear that name. Yes. Gave her a full pardon. Unbelievable. Yeah. I'm like Un- a pardon. Yeah. A pardon. Well, the fact that she got paroled after two years was just <sighs> disturbing enough. I know. Right. I'm like, do you feel like the the people at the prison were all just like, yeah, we don't want her here either.
0: <laughs> you know, when I saw the pardon,
1: I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so what did they do? That well, one of the conditions of the pardon was she had to leave the country, so she mm-hmm. did for a little while. They moved to New Zealand, and opened yeah. up a practice using titles like physician, dietitian, osteopath. She published another book and once again managed to make a considerable sum of money. So, unimaginably, in 1920, just five years after her release from prison. Mm-hmm. Linda and Sam returned to Alala, Washington, where she opened up a lavish new sanitarium, which she named the School of Health because her medical license had been revoked. But right. if she's just a teacher and these are her quote unquote students, then yeah. it's totally cool. And uh, coincidentally, there was an autopsy room so Hazard herself could determine the cause of death for any of her patients. She continued to prescribe her fasting regimen to unsuspecting patients for about 15 more years, mm-hmm. occasionally getting a reprimand uh, for practicing medicine without a license, but I and mean, and more deaths and more deaths. Oh yes. She continued to charm many people in 1922. The longer life league held a raw food dinner and hazard was the guest speaker. The industrial revolution had created many unhealthy side effects Um, Which, of course, gave rise to a number of Americans who developed obesity. And Hazard's like, do I have the cure for you? Now, oddly, her second sanitary mysteriously burned to the ground in 1935. And Hazard never bothered to have it rebuilt. And then, in a little bit of poetic justice, in 1938, she underwent her own treatment to cure an illness and died of self-starvation. She believed her own lies. Yep. Yeah, she was a true believer in all of this. She just was Mm -hmm. like... Coincidentally, I can make a boatload of money from cheating people while I'm starving them. So the house Linda and Sam Hazard's lived in stood for many years later and was purportedly haunted by the 40-some-odd people she murdered there. Sometime uh, since 2010, the cottage was torn down and a new house built on a different part of the property. But mostly what's super sad is her books are still in print. Yeah. It's just wrong. Yeah. Oh my god, yeah. Why? I,
0: I just... I mean, I can see keeping one like for our library so you can refer to it, but not like as a
1: part of history, but not. Yeah. Yeah. So many issues with that. If I want to learn how to be healthy, I'm definitely going to look up somebody who murdered people. Right. And be all like, that's, that's who I admire. That's who I want to be. And some people I don't
0: think know who she is. So they'll see this book and they'll go, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Because they've never heard of Linda Hazard. Mm-hmm. They're not true crime people. Yeah who get into that type of stuff i i what i can't believe is that samuel hazard was never charged with any of this yeah it was put all on her that's the part that shocks me because you know the one that got shot i'm convinced sam hazard did it oh yeah he would
1: probably do all her dirty work like that oh i have no doubt i mean he was a west point grad he knew how to handle a gun you know Mm -hmm. and it's a shame what he made out of his his life but I don't understand how they didn't both die in prison. I really don't understand. I don't either. I have to say, though, my own experience in dealing with people who are con artists, my dad was scammed by some folks. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, they, you know, these con artists have a way of getting between people and their normal relationships and mess with their heads. And then the police won't do anything because they're like, well, this person's an adult and they say that they're fine. And I'm like, but they're not fine because this guy's threatening to cut off his head. So how is that fine? Yeah. Well, you know, some people people say things they don't mean all the time, can't prove intent, and it seems like they still are willing to be around this other person, and you're just like, ah, and there's nothing you can do, you know? So so tell us about the murderous roots of Lynn Hazard. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're not so murderous, actually. Um so-
0: I don't know where all of this with her came from. I wish I did. But she does have a very fascinating tree. Oh. And so this is supposed to be a mini, so we'll see how many it is. Oh, no. Because there was so much good stuff. So we'll start with Linda. You know, she was born in Carver County, Minnesota. And at the young yet adult age of 18, like you mentioned before, she got married. And the man she married was Irwin Alonzo Perry. He was 14 years her senior. Hmm. So, Erwin was the son of Thomas and Helen, and he was a man who never seemed to have a set career path. Ah. In the census and city directories I looked at, here's a brief list of jobs he had worked in his life. Farmer, bartender, travel agent, janitor, teamster, and stablekeeper. Wow, he did get around. Yes, he did. And as you mentioned, the couple had two children. They were Rollin and Nina Floyd. Okay, by 1900, now, she abandoned the kids in 1898, but I don't know where the kids went. I'm not sure they went with him oh, or what, and here's why. Because by 1900, the couple aren't living with each other at all, right? Linda was living with her cousin, Ida Hocum, and her family, and the kids were there as well. And she was working as a cashier in Minneapolis. Oh, that was what her occupation was listed as. Irwin lived as a lodger. Where he was listed as being from Sweden. He wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> but he was living with a bunch of Swedish lodgers on the south side of town, five miles away. Interesting. Yeah. So, and he was in a place where there weren't really kids. Mm-hmm. So I don't know the in-betweens okay. what happened there. They were both listed as married at the time. And the divorce probably came when you said around 1902. But there's no, I couldn't find paperwork on that one. Now, her children, after the divorce, no longer went by the last name Perry. Oh. Instead, their mother had them take her name as their last name. Really? Yes. Now, Nina would sometimes, I think, alternate. Okay. She went, like, when she was with her mom, she was Nina Floyd Perry Burfield. And then when she went on her own, she became Nina Floyd Perry. Okay. So it's like a mother's insistence. So her son, Rollin, was known as Rollin Perry Burfield for the rest of his life. Wow. Yeah. So I think this gets a little bit to her thinking, and it's all about her. Oh, yeah. Yeah. After the divorce, Irwin found himself in Montana, married and divorced again. What I found kind of interesting, though, is his death certificate listed his wife as Linda. Although it did mention that they were divorced. Interesting. But that was not his last wife. (laughs) I mean. So, oh, my God. She I married again. Oh, yeah. my God. I couldn't. Yeah. And they divorced. <laughs> that's so funny. So let's talk about her kids. We'll start with her oldest, Rollin. And he's kind of a mystery. Um, He was born in 1888. And he found himself working as an actor in 1910 while living with his mom in Seattle. Oh, now, that might be why he left the area for New York City, where he met and married Ginny Gunderson in April 1920 in Brooklyn. The couple would find their way back to Seattle to live with his mother. And we, you talked a lot about how Samuel Hazard helped. Well, her son Rollin helped
1: as well. Really? I didn't know that. Yes. Wow. And, and her daughter-in-law. Oh, my God. What a sick so family. In, yeah, very sick. In
0: 1930, Rollin was a proprietor of the Washington Amusement Company. At least I think he was of that. Then in 1936, Jenny was arrested with her mother-in-law, Linda Hazard, after a complaint was filed regarding Linda's methods. Oh, wow. And she was charged with practicing without a license. So, you know, Linda went through the murder trial, but she faced more charges later on. The next year... In 1937, Rollin faced a personal damage suit with several others, including his mother, for ten thousand dollars by a Fred Hermes, a collection agent. Now, Fred claimed he had been forcibly held prisoner on December 21st and 22nd, in 1936, by Rollin and one other person, and that Rollin was impersonating a deputy sheriff. Oh my God! yeah, and the men stole a $500 check signed to Fred. Oh my God. Yeah, the suit was against all those who had invested in the Washington Amusement Company with Rollin, including his mother. She was an investor and a Gustav Groff as majority stockholders. Wow. Now, I'm not sure how it all played out because I don't have access to the Seattle papers. <laughs> However, Rollin would die on December 16th, 1939 at age 51. Wow. So just a year after his mother. His widow, Jenny, would never remarry. She lived to age 86, dying in Chicago in 1982. Wow. Now, daughter Nina, I believe, wanted nothing to do with her mother.
1: Yay! Smart Or one. maybe
0: she didn't want anything to do with Samuel Hazard. But either way, she didn't want to be there. So in April 1910, she, at the age of 20, married 33-year-old Harry P. Braceland. And they left Washington not long after. By 1917, they were living in Stockton, California. Nice. According to the 1940 census, Nina Floyd only completed one year of high school, but she would soon become known as an academic. Not only that, but her work lives on today.
1: Please tell me she didn't write books about starvation. Oh my gosh, no, 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 no.
0: So, Nina, or Bracy, as her friends and colleagues called her, would be educated by private tutors. And after their move to California, Bracy took courses at the University of California, Berkeley. It was in an extension course at Berkeley that Bracy met and became friends with Inez Mejia. With Inez Mejia, a Mexican national, daughter of an ambassador, and Inez was also a plant hunter. Now, Inez was not organized with her collection, so Bracy decided to do it for her. Don't we all need a friend like that? Seriously. While she worked at labeling each plant and corresponding with specialists to name the plants, she developed a relationship and connections with many botanists. Nina even wrote two articles on Inez's work. Oh, wow. In July 1938, Inez died, and in her will, she left $3,000 to the California Academy of Sciences to employ Bracy had been working as a research assistant at the herbarium at berkeley oh wow yeah so bracy started to work as an assistant to alice eastwood a botanist credited with a botanical collection at the california academy of sciences and she was also the woman responsible for naming 395 land plant species that's amazing it is so when the money ran out from the gift from inez they continued her employment. Bracey had two plants named after her. Fuchsia, the Fuchsia Bracelinae, and the Salix, Salix Lessiolepis Bracelinae. Oh my gosh. Bracey's husband died in 1966 at 89. She followed seven years later at the age of 83. They had no children.
1: Wow.
0: In fact, Linda Hazard never had any grandchildren
1: Wow. at all. You know, I'm okay with that. Yeah. Wow. I'm glad she went on and just lived her best life, though. That's amazing.
0: She did. And there's never a mention of her mother. I mean, there was like a little passing, but it doesn't get into, oh, her mom is living to Hazard. Yeah. It's just kind of very vague and it doesn't play it up at all.
1: I wonder if she ever went up to visit her mom.
0: I'm not sure. I don't get the impression she did. Mm -hmm. I get the impression she went to California and that's where she stayed. And she stayed away from her mom.
1: Yeah. Thank God, man. Could you imagine? Yeah. That's my impression. Like a real scientist and your mom's this god awful quack who's murdering people. Yes. Could you imagine? I mean, I can't imagine it. But like, yeah, I get what you're saying. (laughs) Like, oh my
0: God. Well, now let's talk a little bit about Samuel Hazard. Linda's second husband. And there's a lot to say about him, but I'll try to keep it quick because this (laughs) is about Linda, not him. Now, Samuel came from a very good, well, from a very well respected family in Pottsville, Pennsylvania. He was born in 1869 to Charles Hazard, a bank official. And so he was easily recommended to attend West Point by his congressman. And Samuel had great success at West Point, graduating in 1893. In 1895, he was appointed and as an instructor of modern languages a job he held for a while then in 1899 he was assigned to key west but that changed after an outbreak of yellow fever and he found himself at governor's island in new york instead Hmm. that was likely helpful for his wife agnes headley whom he married in new york city in october 1894 now that's when things went wonky because by 1900, he was stationed in Tampa Bay. But by the end of February, he had disappeared. Oh. So he was dropped from the rolls on May 31st, 1900 for desertion. And there were a ton of little newspaper articles about this. Okay. That, oh, we can't find him. He's gone. Wow. I looked at the papers in Pottsville, Pennsylvania. Never. the That was the only mention of him. Wow. Yeah. So. I don't know what happened exactly with his first wife, Agnes. I mean, other than him claiming that they got divorced. Mm But in 1904, his desertion came up in the papers when he was arrested for the bigamy. Wow. So it seems he married Viva Estella Fitzpatrick, not Fitz, um, in April 1903 in St. Paul, the daughter of an Iowa state senator, using an alias, Samuel Hargrave. Linda had a patient in the apartment building that Sam and Viva lived at, and she knew both of them. So, Viva ended up returning to Iowa with the expectation that Sam would transfer. Instead, he married Linda in November 1903 without divorcing Viva, and for all we know, he was still married to Agnes like he claimed, and he's got three marriages going. Wow. Now, he was sentenced to two years for the bigamy, and I see no evidence that they married again him and... Linda okay. there is no other marriage record. So okay. it could be it was legal because there was divorce record with his first wife, but he was convicted of the bigamy against Viva. So it gets a little confusing interesting.-hmm. Now Linda mentioned that he got his divorce from Agnes in September 1903 and they waited until November to marry because of that. Now what I found interesting were some of the articles during the trial because he was telling Viva, I'm leaving, Linda. I'm going to be coming to Iowa and be with you because you're the woman I love. Oh, my God. And there were newspaper articles. He's put Linda to the side. He's, you know, moved on. He and Viva. Yeah. No.
1: Wow.
0: It was all lies. He was a piece of work. Wow. Yeah. So now it's time to start going backwards. <laughs> and we're going to talk about the Burr Fields. So her paternal line was a bit difficult to track. Her grandparents were John and Jane Burfield, who were both born in Pennsylvania. John in 1799. I believe they settled in Barlow, Ohio, where Montgomery lived in 1850. But the thing is, I'm lacking solid evidence to support it with confidence. Okay. Because John Burfield, Jane Burfield, a lot more common than you think. Mm -hmm. Now, if so, though, if that was him living with him in 1850, Montgomery had at least five brothers and sisters. Wow. And Again, Montgomery is Linda's father. So Montgomery was born in March 1828 at Belfont, Pennsylvania, just 12 miles northeast of State College, a town that didn't exist in 1828. <laughs> <laughs> Montgomery made his way west, settling in Carver County, Minnesota, where he married his first wife, Margaret Ladley, in 1857. The couple had two children, Matilda Jane and Thomas Julius. Then in 1862, Montgomery enlisted in Company H of the 9th Minnesota Infantry Regiment during the Civil War. What they may not have known at the time of his enlistment was that Margaret was pregnant with their third child. Mm. The first campaigns of the 9th involved the Sioux, with Company A starting a campaign against the native tribe, Company H, Montgomery's company, served as relief. This was the Dakota War of 1862. Hmm. Other names for it are the Sioux Uprising, Dakota Uprising, or Little Crow's War. It started in, in August 1862 after a young Dakota killed five settlers from Germany. Later that night, a council of Dakota made the decision to drive away the settlers by attacking settlements. 358 settlers were killed now this um uprising i guess you would say at the time it prompted a bunch of it prompted the enlistments into the militia in minnesota okay. it had the civil war exactly at that time mm-hmm. it ended with 400 dakota surrendering over 1600 sioux captured including women children and the elderly montgomery's unit in december worked as guards in mankato as 38 dakota men were hanged the day after christmas It was the largest one-day mass execution in U.S. history. Some refer to it as the Mankato Massacre, and it was ordered by President Lincoln.
1: I remember hearing about that, Mm -hmm. and and so was he part of that? He was one of the guards there, yeah. Oh my God. That's where his unit was. Wow, and and I encourage people, like, go read up on this, because the U.S. does not, come off looking very good in any of it
0: no and i'm going to talk a little bit more about it here in a second um there is a documentary though and i'll put it on the website as well called the dakota 38 and i just found it today so i'm going to check it out myself soon Mm -hmm. to be clear the dakota did not start the violence just to be violent the u.s Mm -hmm. had been negotiating and violating treaties for decades part of the treaties included the dakota ceding large amounts of land provided that the U.S. would give them money and supplies. With the Civil War going on, the U.S. was behind on money and food by two months, at least. Mm -hmm. Most land where the Dakota were forced to live was not arable, and hunting wasn't enough to feed all the people there. So being behind on food was not good in any shape or form. Mm -hmm. Then the Dakota asked for food on credit. Like, can we get this food now? It's supposed to be coming anyway. Give it to us on credit. Mm-hmm. And they were denied by the government rep, Andrew Jackson Myrick, who was quoted as saying, so far as I am concerned, if they are hungry, let them eat grass or their own dung. Wow. Yeah.
1: What a bastard.
0: Yeah, he was. And this is what prompted Little Crow to argue for attacks to drive out whites after the Dakota man killed the five German settlers. Because I believe that was an... Kind of an accident, like they ran across him, it got into a and the, the guy that part that set it off didn't happen intentionally. But apparently, at first, Little Crow wasn't supporting the idea of the attacks until a young brave called him a coward. Wow. Mm-hmm. The war ended a month later on September 26, 1862. Little Crow was killed in July 1863 while gathering raspberries with his son. The shooter collected a bounty. His skull and scalp were put on display in St. Paul, Minnesota, where it remained with the city until 1971.
1: Oh, that's horrifying.
0: It's awful. I, it just makes me angry just thinking about that when I was saying it. it was making me angry, too. Wow.
1: Yeah.
0: So there's a lot more to learn about this. And it, it wasn't taught in school when I was in school. Mm-hmm. It's one of those you learn later, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Once the Dakota War came to an end, the 9th Minnesota Infantry and Montgomery moved south to aid Union forces for the remainder of the Civil War. While at war in April 1863, Montgomery's wife died during childbirth. She is buried with her infant son. Mm. Montgomery was discharged in May 1865. It was after the war ended that he met and married widow and mother of her own two children in January 1867, Mrs. Susanna Wakefield. They would have seven children of their own, the first being Linda. Montgomery would move the family to Starlake, Minnesota by 1880. In March 1896, Montgomery was hauling logs to a sawmill when his load tipped over and a heavy log fell on his chest, killing him instantly. Oh my gosh. Yeah, he was 68. Mm.
1: Are you fascinated by true crime like us?
0: If so, check out our podcast, Crime Divers, hosted by me, Jill, me, Laura, look out for new episodes every Tuesday when we discuss true crime from around the world. So what are you waiting for? Come join us as we dive in. So let's talk about the maternal line. Mrs. Susanna Wakefield, or Susan, was born Susanna Neal in 1840, Quebec. um, Likely in the town of Shefford, where she was baptized in 1841 at eight months old. Susan's grandfather, Silas Lewis, a native of Templeton, Massachusetts, was an early settler of Shefford, first moving there in 1796. In 1855, her family left Quebec to settle in Minnesota. In fact, they were likely the first settlers in Young America, Minnesota. Oh! According to, yeah, this is according to the book, History of the Minnesota Valley. Not too long after arriving, 16 year old Susan married Ohio native and widower Sylvanus Carlton Wakefield. He was twice her age at 32. Oh my. Yeah. Susan would become a stepmother to one son, Orison, and have two daughters with Sylvanus before the Civil War began. Sylvanus enlisted in the 4th Minnesota Infantry Regiment in October 1861. Unlike Montgomery's regiment, this one headed for St. Louis by April 1862. They advanced on Corinth, Mississippi, under the command of Major General Henry Halleck. The advance moved so slow, it became known as the Siege of Corinth. Oh, my gosh. We've had some others who were at that siege, actually. It was during the siege, while in battle with Confederate forces, that Sylvanus would lose his life, making Susan a widow with three children in her charge. Wow. Now, Susan would apply for a pension and actually received it by April 1863. Which, that's the first time I've seen one granted during the Civil War. Wow. Hmm. Yeah. It's likely that she lived with her mother until her marriage to Montgomery in 1867. But I have no way of knowing that for certain. Okay. Or it could be a sibling she stayed with. Now, Susan's father was James Neal, an immigrant from County Antrim in Ireland. Oh, yay. He settled first in Shefford, Quebec, where he met and married Mary Lewis, daughter of Silas Lewis. James and Mary wed at an Anglican church in April 1832, ages 26 and 25, respectively.
1: Oh my gosh, how age
0: appropriate. I know, isn't it nice? They would have at least five children, daughters, but likely more who remained in Shefford. Even though he was 54 at the start of the Civil War, this double immigrant would enlist to serve the Union. In the same regiment and company as his son-in-law, Sylvanus. Huh. Yeah. In February 1863, General Ulysses S. Grant and Rear Admiral David D. Porter led the Yazoo Pass expedition, an attempt to bypass Confederate defenses on the bluffs using the backwaters of the Mississippi Delta as a route from the Mississippi River to the Yazoo River in hopes of crossing the river unopposed. Now, James Neal's regiment was part of this expedition. On March 11th, when the Union fleet finally approached the fort at Greenwood, Mississippi, James was injured and discharged due to disability, Mm. um, returning home soon after. And apparently they moved so slow on this that the Confederate forces were anticipating the Union's arrival. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, James and Mary would both die in 1883, less than five months apart in their mid-70s. Now, Mary Lewis's maternal family goes quite a ways back. I was able to trace her family back to 1585 in London, England, with the birth of her fourth great-grandfather, William Collier, who married Jane Clark in 1611. Linda's sixth great-grandparents, who were her earliest immigrant parents, came to the colonies in 1633 and lived in Duxbury, Massachusetts until their death. Wow! I also found two Revolutionary War patriots, Silas Lewis's father, Captain James Lewis, born in 1730, Oxfordshire, England, and her maternal grandfather, Captain John Savage,
1: from northern ireland born in 1740 so she had some really interesting ancestors she did and then she became a murderer yes and so people remember her family because of what she did Mm -hmm. and who she hurt rather than some of the probably good things they did wow (laughs) that's what i intend to have my family remembered as (laughs) not all the good things they do but the shit i've pulled (laughs) Actually, that could be fun.
0: Okay, anyhow. Um, Let's talk about her siblings. She was one of at least 11 children. Holy crap! That includes all the half-siblings and full siblings. Oh, okay, that makes more sense. Growing up in her home. Okay. Because remember, her dad had two children from a first marriage, her mother had two children from her first marriage, then they had their seven kids together.
1: (sighs) That woman was very generous to God.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And she was the oldest child born to Montgomery and Susan. So... Next came Sister Ida Francis, just 17 months later. Ida would marry William Westover in 1888, and they'd have a son and daughter. Their daughter, Grace, married a man with an unfortunate name, given the times. around They got married around 1931. His name was Adolf Mueller. Oh my. Yeah. He was a building engineer in California. I bet he started going by his middle name. I would think i would uh, Mm have just to avoid especially with the german last name on top of it Mm -hmm. at a time there's a lot of anti-german sentiment They're lucky they didn't end up in a camp because we were like doing that
1: we were doing that yeah
0: mainly the japanese but some of the germans Mm -hmm. yes now they would have a son myron myron made the news for the first time in july 1998 so this would be a nephew of linda okay like a great grant great like second great nephew or whatever but anyhow this um headline comes from north county times july 6th 1998 retiree sets out on 2500 mile bicycle ride so at the age of 66 myron set out on a 70 day bicycle ride with 11 other cyclists along the continental divide
1: oh how lovely the,
0: yes the ride started in whitefish montana so, this is the um, Great Divide bike ride that ends in New Mexico. And on the ride, he brought with him the ashes of his dog, Prince, a Pomeranian. <laughs> but that wasn't enough for Myron. Oh, no.
1: Okay, wait, a, wait and, a second, though. You said it was 120 miles?
0: No, 70... Wait, how many... 2,500
1: miles. Okay. 2,500 miles. That makes more sense. Because I'm like, it's more than 120 miles from Montana no, no. to Mexico. It was 70 days. Oh, okay. So, okay. Sorry about that. So... That wasn't enough for him, Oh no!
0: In January two thousand and two, Myron and his friend Jim Stout peddled away from their home in Encinitas, California, for an adventure that lasted ten and a half months. Myron and Stout bicycled the perimeter of the United States, bicycling twelve thousand miles. Myron was seventy, and he made the Guinness Book of World Records as the oldest man to do this.
1: Oh, my God! So this would have been one of her cousins.
0: No, one of her nephews. One of her nephews. Okay.
1: Oh my God, that's amazing.
0: It is. He passed away four years later at the age of 74 while hiking.
1: He was doing something he loved. Wow. Yes.
0: But it gets even better because his daughter, Denise, which she has a brilliant name, I think, was very proud of her dad, who before riding bikes founded the Rancho Santa Fe security firm in 1978 a company in San Diego County that operates to this day. So Denise is no slouch herself and has her own Wikipedia page. Oh my. De- yeah. Denise Mueller, Corona, Corink. So if, if Denise, you happened to be listening to this, I'm sorry. I butchered your name, but Corrin, I think is how it's pronounced, but she's a cyclist. And in 2018, and I think this still holds to this day. She is considered the fastest cyclist
1: on earth. Oh my gosh. That's awesome. Yeah. Girl power. Yay.
0: Um, On September 16th, 2018, she set a bicycle speed record on the Bonneville Salt Flats in Utah, traveling an average of 183.932 miles per hour on a custom built carbon KHS bicycle while behind a vehicle to minimize air resistance.
1: Oh, my God.
0: Yeah, she broke the record set by Fred Rompelberg in 1995 of 167 miles per hour. Oh, my God. So she didn't just break it. She shattered the record.
1: Well, I have to say, so when you said her name, I had to just like go look it up because that's Mm -hmm. how I roll. And she was quoted, I don't know if you saw this quote as saying, in our family, crazy is kind of normal. (laughs) i wonder if she knows that linda was her aunt denise (laughs) how fitting that is you hear this we kind of want to talk to you because your family sounds amazing yes i had to see if she's on twitter
0: or something and tag her yeah that she sees us okay denise is the first woman and only woman in history to hold the world record and is the ceo of her father's security company at the same time
1: see this is how you have a healthy life You know, you get out and you live your life. Now, Linda's brother, Montgomery Jr., five
0: years younger than Linda, remained in Minnesota, unlike his older sisters, where he was a farmer. And he married Myrtle Pepper in 1892 and had six children. She died in 1907 and Montgomery remarried two years later to Blanche Harris. He was 37 She was 18. Ew. I mean, technically she's an adult, but yeah. Ew. Ew. The couple would have five children of their own, and we're going to talk about three of them. Daughter Pearl Burfield was not lucky in love. She married Mm. and divorced three times before finding her fourth and last husband. I'm not judging, but it's just a bit unusual, especially given the times. Mm -hmm. But her brothers, only sons of Blanche Montgomery, had bigger challenges than just multiple marriages we'll start with roland barton burfield born in 1917 roland was a world war ii vet who served in the army from january 1942 to september 1945 at the end of the war roland had a couple of incidents with driving the first was in february 1946 when he failed to stop after an accident basically a hit and run Mm -hmm. and he had no driver's license in his possession either at the time oh god yeah. Then in January 1948, Roland was involved in a more serious car accident in northern Iowa, just south of the Minnesota state line near Elmore, Minnesota. Now, it's important to remember that in 1948, there weren't seatbelts, mm-hmm. much less car seats for children. According to Burfield in the Algona Upper Des Moines paper um, on January 27, 1948, he had been in Bellingham, Washington when he and two of his brothers left and there he only had two brothers though so that was walter and judson so three days before this incident happened they left bellingham washington basically he dropped his brothers off in nebraska and continued on his way to grundy center iowa okay and while he was in grundy center he just stayed overnight at a friend's house on a friday night just to get some sleep the next afternoon he left heading for minneapolis to a home he recently built As he headed north, he came up behind Norval Krosh and his family as they were heading home to Elmore, Minnesota. Roland claimed that Krosh's vehicle suddenly appeared. And when he tried to brake, he couldn't stop in time because the brakes must have been bad. Norval was going 25 miles per hour. Roland Burfield was going 55. Oh my. When he hit the Krosh family vehicle. In the Crosh family vehicle was Mr. and Mrs. Crosh, a baby girl named Joyce, being held in her mother's lap. Two other daughters and a son, Earl, aged 7. Roland had no injuries, but Earl had a cut over his eye. Daughter Marilyn, age 5, had head injuries. Norville had back injuries. There was bruising for Mrs. Crosh and a daughter. The baby, though, well, this is from the Algona Upper Des Moines paper again. The baby was being held in the front seat by its mother. The impact bounced the baby from its mother's arms. The little top flew through the rear window (gasps) of the 1934 Ford and over Burfield's machine.
1: Oh, my God. The baby was
0: just six weeks old. (gasps) Oh, my God. And she lived with a double skull fracture for two days before she died. Oh, my God. It's heartbreaking.
1: If I were that mom, I would have peeled his skin off right there
0: something I would I just but it, that's not even the there's even more upset setting part oh, on this. No. Roland was arrested, but only because he didn't have the three hundred dollars in fines he needed to pay for the accident. <gasps> oh my God, the charges being improper brakes, overtaking a car contrary to a section of Iowa code, and following another car closer than a reasonable distance. The prosecuting attorney said they just didn't have enough to go after him for more. To that, I say bullshit.
1: Did the family at least sue him for damages or anything?
0: I didn't find anything about a lawsuit.
1: Oh, my God.
0: I mean, it's possible. but Of
1: course, back then, they might have gotten their medical bills taken care of, but that would have been yeah. In. That's horrible. It is. Roland
0: left Minnesota a few years later for Anchorage, Alaska, where he lived until his death at age 54 in 1971.
1: Good. Minnesota did not need him. No. alaska knows how to deal with those people right i'm just because here's what i know they didn't just
0: suddenly appear if they're doing 25 miles per hour they didn't suddenly appear
1: well and hello you've been to iowa right i mean yeah. how many times and it's flat I mean, there's Mm -hmm. the occasional cow breaking up the landscape. But for the most part, it's flat. You know, he had to have seen them.
0: Right. And you you could see, Mm -hmm. especially that part, because I have driven through that part enough. Mm -hmm. And he would have at least seen a way to go around them. Right. If he would, that was the issue. Mm -hmm. Because there's not traffic coming at you that quick, especially
1: back then on top of it. Because, I mean, he was only going 55 miles an hour. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's not like there's 150 miles an hour that's mm-hmm. there's something going on there
0: yeah I, i'm I don't judging him. with those brakes. i am too
1: i'm just it, mm-hmm. here's what i suspect happened and this is just mm-hmm. me because talking out of my um ear because <laughs> it's like okay i bet he was stuck behind them for some purpose was angry because for some reason he couldn't get around mm-hmm. him and decided to ram into them to get him to move over to the side of the road
0: that's possible. I was thinking more that he had driven those three days. He might have slept at the friend's house, but he was still tired. Mm-hmm. He wasn't paying attention. Oh, yeah. He was falling asleep. He he wakes up and he realizes he's about to hit the car. Yeah. And he he goes to stop and it's too late.
1: That's entirely possible, too.
0: Yeah. Oh, so Roland was um, Linda's nephew from mm-hmm. her brother Montgomery. Okay. So Montgomery's other son, Walter, was born in nineteen twenty so montgomery junior's other son walter was born in 1922 also enlisted in the army but his time was much shorter four months after his enlistment he was discharged due to illness he married berenica cordell in 1940 and they had three sons and one daughter and interestingly enough they lived in an area not too far from me oh and i found the following article in the pantograph on june 6 1963 Charging assault, he sues visitor. A Pekin man who claims he was assaulted at his home by a visitor to another apartment has filed suit against the alleged assailant in Taswell Circuit Court. Walter H. Burfield filed the suit against John Estes. He claimed that Estes visiting a second floor apartment of his son, Walter G. Burfield, beat him with his fist and a blunt instrument. Burfield asks Damages for his injuries of $5,000 plus $5,000 for punitive damages. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, the next year, Walter would die in a head-on collision at the age of 41. And the other driver also died. So, there's a thing with car accidents on Montgomery Jr.'s family. Now, it seems that some of the children of Montgomery Jr. and Blanche did face a lot of hurdles. Now, let's talk about two of Linda's half-siblings those of a Montgomery and his first wife, Margaret. Okay. Their their oldest was Matilda Jane, who at the age of 19 or so married August Bourne around 1879. August had several different jobs as they raised their six children. And I have a post-mistress alert. Really? Kind of. Yeah, kind of. Kind of excited. Their only daughter, Pearl, worked as an assistant postmistress from around 1904- to 1906
1: i love that and what a name pearl that's like the perfect postmistress name
0: and her yeah her name at the time was um pearl born see there you go and she stopped being a postmistress once she got married to charles st john darn it (laughs) now matilda's youngest child arthur who was born in 1895 had an adventurous spirit oh did he join the circus
1: no. Oh,
0: I'm waiting for um, someone to join the circus. I haven't ever run across that, but you never know. I found the following. But you would think that it happened a lot more frequently uh-huh. than it has based on the stories you'd hear. Yep. You know, like when you were a kid. Oh, where are you going to do? Go join the circus? Yep. Yeah. Okay. So this is um, from the Minneapolis Star on the 13th of August, 1924. <laughs> Minneapolitan <laughs> That's literally what they put on the headline. Minneapolitan Helped building of world planes. Arthur Bourne visits here after helping make flight possible. Oh. At the age of 15, 1910, Arthur learned to fly. In 1916, he built his own plane. By the time of this article, he was working for what would become McDonnell Douglas. Oh, my gosh. And it was that McDonnell Douglas was taken over by Boeing. And he was working for them, giving them technical direction in the building of Navy airplanes and four American round-the-world planes. Wow. So in 1927, Arthur flew from Pierre, South Dakota to San Francisco to enter a contest flying from there to Honolulu. Oh. With the first pilot arriving in Honolulu would win (gasps) $80,000. Wow. Now, this is 1927. 80,000 sounds like great now, but... Let me tell you, that's like a million dollars today. Wow. There was an entry fee of $500. That's the equivalent of, I looked it up, $6,700 today. Arthur would marry Mexican national Teresa Vera Montez in 1940 and would make Canonia, Mexico, his home until his death in 1972. Now, last but not least is Thomas Julius, born in 1860. Remember, this is a half-sibling of Linda. In 1881, he would marry Juliana Juice. So Thomas was not a farmer like his father. He was a photographer who had his own studio in Waconia, Minnesota until he retired. And his son, Thomas Jr. took over. Thomas and wife Juliana had 11 children, only two of which were boys. So they had nine daughters. They're so lucky. Yes. As my husband would say, though, oh my... Nine
1: weddings? (laughs) My brother's feeling that pain. He has five daughters and he's paying for one wedding in May and another wedding in January. So
0: my husband's convinced that, you know, we'll pay for the girls to go to college and then he has to, he can't retire because then he has to pay for their weddings if they want to get married. (laughs) And, and since we started a little older than the average person, that means he's like never retiring. So there you go.
1: Maybe you'll be really lucky and they'll all become nuns.
0: Well, funny you should say that. Now, sadly, two of the daughters died in childhood mm-hmm. and one would die unmarried at age 32. And I presume that Juliana was Catholic because the family was very Catholic. I say this because the other six daughters mm-hmm. all became nuns.
1: Are you kidding you know, one me? Of
0: no, I'm not. Not one of them ever married.
1: I love this so much. Yay, <laughs> nuns. I love nuns. Okay. There were four in the School Sisters of Notre
0: Dame. <gasps> Sister I Mary... love the School Sisters of Notre Dame. <laughs> oh, Okay, I'll shut up. No, keep going. There was Sister Mary Bertrandis. Sister Mary Thomasine, Sister Mary Gregor Veronica. And what's cool about her is she actually went to Guatemala for one year. Uh-huh. In 1964 to 1965, but before that, in 1957, she was spent time in Sa- Sao Paulo, oh, Brazil, yeah, teaching English for 3 years. Oh my gosh. And Sister Mary Devota Genevieve. Now, and then there were two in the Order of St Benedict. Awesome. Sister Ubalda Malonia, she was a music teacher, and Sister Corda Clara Margaret
1: oh no were they the minnesota benedictines or did they take did they go with a different one minnesota oh i love that i love the minnesota benedictines <laughs> <laughs> i've been there they're lovely and that is the family tree
0: of linda burfield hazard
1: oh you ended on such a positive note this is so nice <laughs> oh my gosh i was really like i found this this particular um criminal kind of devastating you know because she was so methodical and just so so cruel i mean the cruelty of it is just beyond imagining and she was using people's desire to
0: better themselves or to get healthier Mm -hmm. against them
1: yeah yeah and i'm just I, i mean so to end on the note that the rest of her family spent their lives making up for her bullshit, whether or not they knew it. But I'm well, like... Well, the vast majority did, yeah. Except you? for that one Roland Burfield. Oh, Roland. Oh, But, you know, I have to say, it. it's curious to me. I would love to know what her relatives thought of her.
0: Same. But, you know, and I looked at newspaper articles... And I was looking for their names to pop up and nobody made a comment about her. Not one of her brothers or sisters seemed to have been interviewed. Mm -hmm. I found that
1: curious. Yeah. So it makes me think that they wanted to, but they wouldn't say a word. Right. Right. Wow. Cause, and there just doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence of interacting with her family of origin. Mm -mm. So I just, I mean, was she hit on the head as a child? I mean, how did, how did she end up behaving like that? When the rest of our family seems relatively normal. Yeah, they do. It's just it's it's odd. <laughs> it's so strange. But oh my gosh, Denise, thank you for all your hard work on this. I just this was You're super welcome. enjoyable. I'm so glad we did this. Good. I'm glad I could end on such a high note. Does make you think though about our own murderous roots. Thank you
0: for listening to Murderous Roots. If you enjoyed our podcast, we hope that you'll subscribe and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you and any suggestions you might have for future episodes. You can find us on most social media outlets like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and even TikTok. You can also find us at murderousroots.com. That's M U R. D E R O U S R O O T S dot com, where you can find more materials related to the episode that we just discussed.